according to St. Mark. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses who were talking with Jesus. And then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be there. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved, Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is the gospel of the Lord. In my, in my senior year in high school, I, I thought it was pretty great. <laughs> I mean, I had a time in the spring of that year uh, when depression fell on me like a 300-pound professional wrestler. But all things considered, I, I had a pretty great senior year. Heck, I thought pretty much all of my high school experience was pretty great. In fact, for a long time, I figured that everybody had a great high school experience, which they looked back on with fondness. Of course, I've come to understand that uh, not everybody felt as good about their high school days as I did. I can see now how much so many people hated that time. And, and it, it makes more sense to me now. I mean, let's face it. Adolescence is a time fraught with insecurities. I mean, people are trying to figure out who they are, how they measure up, so many body image issues, so much emotional up and down, times of great social mishigas when everybody's jockeying for position, wondering where they fit in and the great social pecking order. I didn't realize it at the time, but... Some of my friends who were struggling with their sexual orientation were fighting on battlefields I didn't really even know existed. And to the extent that I didn't realize things were different for some of my classmates, I couldn't imagine how profoundly painful the whole experience of being young, of being in high school was. Let's be honest, it was a cruel world in those days for LGBTQ kids, and in many ways, many of the same ways, it still is. And it wasn't just 
sexual orientation, I, I, I didn't have the capacity to imagine the pain that people my age were going through. Um, pain that I hadn't necessarily experienced and I just didn't understand that other people were going through it. Addiction problems, family strife, bullying, alienation. I mean, the list is long and painful. It's no wonder that so many people look back on that time in their lives with great dread. I wish I had been able to be more sensitive, that, 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 that I could go back and be the kind of person that they needed for me to be then, the kind of person I would like to have been. But again, I, I had my own problems making my way in the world at that point. As I say, I, I had a period of terrible depression when I thought the world would be better off without me. But that lasted for only a few months, nothing in comparison to the kind of strife and anxiety that other people faced. Nevertheless, here's my guilty secret. I, I loved high school. <laughs> I was all conference and track, vice president of my class, lead in the school musical, steady girlfriend, blah, blah, all that stuff, which I thought made me sort of king of the world at that point. Of course, back then, I, I thought all of those kinds of achievements were what life was about. Things that I've since had to tell my own kids repeatedly that chasing after of which aren't really the kind of things that a meaningful life is built on. Anyway, so when I graduated, I was, of course, excited. At the baccalaureate service, I got to introduce the speaker, who was Richard DeVos, co-founder of Amway, and now we know father-in-law to the erstwhile disastrous Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. But the whole time was really exciting. I mean, what with all the graduation, open houses, and the parties, and the banquets, and the awards. It was just, it was a big deal. But a day or two after graduation, and after things had died down, it dawned on me that I was going to have to start making my own way in the world. Turns out they didn't really care down at the Oven Fresh Bread Factory about how cool I thought I was in high school. <laughs> Nobody handed me any awards when I worked 20-hour shifts unloading ovens or moving rolling racks of dough into the proofer. To the full-timers there, I was just a crib, which is what they called summer workers. I remember thinking as I lay in my unair-conditioned room in July after a 12- or 14-hour shift, knowing that I could be called back in 10 hours after I punched out, I was thinking, man, I wish I was back in high school. <laughs> because everything that lay in front of me felt dark and foreboding. I didn't know what to expect. Only that I was going to be facing a future that didn't have training wheels. One that could conceivably end in disaster. I mean, I could fail. I could, bad things could happen. As I lay there sweating, I kept wanting to go back and, and sort of hide in the glory that I just couldn't nail in place, the kind of glory that felt as if it slipped like sand through my fingers. I was, to put a finer point on it, 
yearning for the comfort of past glories, terrified of the future. And I have to believe that Peter, James, and John in our gospel this morning would have understand, understood my trepidation. But before I get into that, let me, in order to understand it, let me step back for a moment and sort of set the stage. Our text this morning is the story of the transfiguration, that episode in Jesus' ministry when he and a handful of his disciples trudge up a high mountain so that Jesus can pray. This Sunday is what is liturgically known as Transfiguration Sunday. It is the final Sunday before we have uh, the beginning of Lent starting on Ash Wednesday. While on the mountain, in the midst of all of that, Jesus' clothes start glowing white. And all of a sudden, long-dead Jewish prophets, Moses and Elijah, show up and they kick off a committee meeting right there in front of God and everybody. Now, the disciples are terrified, Mark tells us, because of course they were. I mean, not every day this side of Haight-Ashbury do you see something as psychedelic as that. But then Mark says a cloud overshadowed them. And from a cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm Peter, James, and John... I've got that whole Shaggy and Scooby-Doo thing going on where they see the snow beast and their legs start cartwheeling in a circle and they scan their surroundings looking for the mystery machine. But somehow, in, in the midst of the terror, Peter says something that appears completely out of character for the harrowing scene that they find themselves in. He says, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Wait, what? I mean, why is it good for us to be here? I mean, the whole scene looks like it, it's ripped from some mystic's fever dream. Now, in order to know why Peter might have been motivated to set up tents at Pink Floyd night at the Lazarium, we need to know first what's happening before and after Jesus and the three amigos take their mountain hike. You see, just prior to our text for this morning, Mark has Jesus in this grim discussion with his disciples about what's coming next in their barnstorming tour of the Palestinian outback. Mark tells us, Then Jesus began to teach them as the Son of Man that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And do you remember what comes next after Jesus' little burst of sunshine? Peter takes Jesus aside, and he says that under no circumstances is he going to let that happen. To which Jesus famously replies, Get behind me, Satan, for you're, letting, you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Okay, well, so, I mean, that's all pretty bracing news to the disciples that their beloved leader is about to be executed by the state. I mean, yikes, right? 
But I suspect what comes next, that's what really spooks them. Because Jesus says, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who's, who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Now, well, that sounds a bit harsh. The next thing we hear, Jesus is taking Peter, James, and John on this little excursion up the mountain, which is where we begin our story this morning. So you can imagine that the whole way up the mountain trail, the three disciples have Jesus' words sort of rattling around in their heads. You want me to follow you? And, 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 and you say that I can expect the same treatment that you say you're headed for? This humiliating and painful death at the hands of the oppressors of our land? And that we'll probably die alone, abandoned by everybody we love? I mean, that's, that's what you're saying? So then they get to the top of the mountain and they see this great light show and they're in the presence of Jesus, two revered Jewish prophets surrounded by the voice of God and they have a sneaking suspicion that what lies in wait for them when they leave the mountaintop isn't going to be fun for anybody. With the uncertainty that Jesus has just laid out for them about picking up their crosses and dying as enemies of the state, Peter sees the ancient Near Eastern version of the Justice League all wearing their technicolor dream coats, and he says, you know, all things being equal, this seems like a pretty swell place to be. Why don't we pitch a few tents and just stay right here? I mean, we could make them nice, like... like Hermione Granger nice. I mean, just everything right here. No need to be getting all eager about leaving this place, heading down into the dangerous world. I mean, why not just, why not just stay put? I mean, really, Jesus, if it's, if it's all the same to you, we're good right where we are. <laughs> and I get it. I mean, I totally get why the disciples would rather just batten down the hatches and watch HBO than head down the mountain into an untenable political environment that will soon cost Jesus everything and will make the disciples' lives a living hell. January 6th, not quite six weeks ago, I woke up that morning to the news that the Georgia Senate race had been called for Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff after a pitched battle which gave control of the Senate to the Democrats. I, I, mean, I don't know about your political leanings, but I mean, whatever side of the aisle you favor, the news was seismic. Since it gave control of the White House to the, uh, the, the control uh, uh, of the White House, the Senate, and the House to the Democrats. After lunch, I, I figured I'm going to take a nap, knowing that. Congress was just beginning the process of receiving the Electoral College vote, which would then officially name Joe Biden the 46th President of the United States. I mean, all of it was momentous, this is huge change in the political landscape. 
But when I woke up from my nap, and I, as I, is my custom, I guess, I checked Twitter, <laughs> and I was shocked to see that there was this violent insurrection at the Capitol building, where, where, where the Congress was supposed to be voting to receive the Electoral College vote. Now, unless you've just returned to Earth from a long sojourn to the outer reaches of the solar system, you know what happened there. I mean, thousands of people incited to action by then-President Donald Trump violently attacked the Capitol in an attempt to prevent Congress from officially recognizing the ascent of a new president. I don't suspect that any of us will ever forget that day. Insurrectionists dressed in everything from military tactical gear down to down jackets and sweatpants. I mean, they broke windows and entered the house where Congress does its business. Everybody from military veterans and off-duty law enforcement officers to, to, to accountants and and small business owners fueled by the big lie that the 2020 election had somehow been stolen and by conspiracy theories that suggested uh, they were somehow striking out against the global cannibalism slash pedophilia ring, they attacked the Capitol with fire extinguishers and flagpoles in an attempt to keep Donald Trump in office. This is just a rehearsal of everything that we all know. Five people died that day, and more soon after from the shockwaves, hundreds were maimed, even more traumatized by chance to lynch the vice president, shoot the Speaker of the House. And it was, I mean, it was all on live TV. It was on cable. It was broadcast everywhere. The whole world was watching. And I usually don't talk about this stuff, but I mean, Lord have mercy, to ignore it, seems, I don't know, like malpractice, because we all are living through it. It was gruesome, and it was terrifying, and it, it will leave a stain on our country for years to come. And yesterday, 43 senators voted to ignore what everybody knows, that the ex-president incited a violent overthrow of a democratically elected government, and they acquitted Donald Trump of incitement to insurrection. Now, whatever your political leanings, history, I, I, I feel pretty sure, will not be kind to the ex-president or to those people who were thought to enable him or to the chaos that seems to have been unleashed in our land. But per, what's perhaps even more frightening is what could potentially lay in front of us as as white nationalists believe they found a violent formula to achieve their goals in the future. They've been emboldened, as so many commentators have said. And that's, I mean, that's the world we live in right now, right? I mean, it's scary times, an uncertain future facing all of us as social, legal, and political norms are being upended daily. I suspect that's why so many people want to stick close to their church at this alarming point in our history. People are worried that the American Rescue Plan won't reach them soon enough, that the money will run out before the $1,400 checks arrive, or before the landlord finally can boot them out, or LG&E can shut the lights off. 
women live with abusive spouses see that such abuse is tolerated in our culture? A nation stands by and watches video of an impeached president in sight and insurrection on the Capitol, but still that's not enough to convict. Which blindness, in the case of Afri young African-American men, abused by law enforcement isn't new since they've learned through years of experience that even videographic evidence isn't enough to establish guilt for those in power. I mean, the nuclear countdown clock ticks closer to midnight. The planet warms at an alarming rate. Real unemployment numbers hover around 10% while people scramble to find vaccinations for their aging parents and grandparents. And on Sunday mornings, I come here to church and I fire up the Zoom machine and I think, it is good for us to be here. Especially when here feels at least marginally safer than out there. I mean, we could just sort of stay here on the mountaintop and pitch a few tents and ride out the storm while the rest of the world tears itself apart. But the problem is, by the time we get the tents put up, Jesus is already headed back down the mountain into the chaotic mess that awaits him below. So it's no longer a good thing for us to be good in here because Jesus is headed out there. Why does he leave when it's just safer to camp out right where we are? Well, Jesus goes down the mountain into the valley of the shadow of Lent because that's where his presence is needed most. That's where the last, the least, and the lost scramble to survive. Down there. I suspect he goes down there because he's heard the voices of people terrified at the thought of what the future holds. Jesus heads down there because that's where the action is, where the tempest-tossed live in fear of the night, down, down there. And if we're going to call ourselves by his name, even though it's good for us to be here, well, we need to follow him down there, too. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.